Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my co-host Carrie Plitt. Good morning, Carrie Plitt. Good morning, Octavia Bright. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's the morning. I'm ready to go. I've had some coffee. Yeah, sounds perfect. Um, so Carrie has once again let me have the keys to this Chevy. Um, so she's buckled up beside me and I'm driving again. Don't know how long I can keep this metaphor going. I can't actually drive. <laughs> Don't know where the gear stick is. But anyway, we're really... drive an automatic. I should drive so an automatic. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. That's such an American thing to say. We drive stick here, babe. Yes, in case you didn't. But know. you don't say stick. No, that's also true. Mm. I'm just translating <laughs> for you. Been here anyway, for ten anyway. years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just razzing you. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Welcome to Minisode Number Two. We're really pleased to be back with another one for you guys. Um, thank you for all the amazing feedback that you gave us about Minisode One. Uh, it was a great relief to us that it went down well. <laughs> Please keep it coming. We want to hear what you want to see, hear, not see. We want to hear what you want to hear uh, and all your thoughts. Maybe not all your thoughts, but the majority of your thoughts. If you want to write your thoughts to us, we will read them. We won't necessarily respond. We'll try. Yes. <laughs> we are listening. Like Fraser Crane, we're listening. Um, Carrie, do you want to give us a rundown of what we can expect on the minisode today? Yeah, totally. So a big hello to our regular listeners and also anyone who is just tuning in for the first time. So for the next half hour or so, we're going to follow a similar structure to last show, which is that for the first half, we're going to be answering a question. And the question this week is, which literary characters do you have a crush on? And then, as usual, for the second half, we will be giving some cultural recommendations outside of books. So let's get started. Let's do it. So on the last minisode, we talked about books we hated. Um, and this time we thought we'd balance it out by talking about characters that we love, but like love, love. There's something so intimate about the act of reading and the way that you take these characters into your mental landscape. Um, and obviously novels were historically blamed for corrupting the minds of genteel young women for this very reason. And especially because you often read them lying down. And so there's this kind of connection with reading and the sexual imaginary that you kind of can't escape. Also, let's give a shout out to the wild and boundaryless world of fan fiction here, which if you ever need to know whether readers' imaginations are alive and well in the worlds of crushing on characters, they just take a tiny step into that mm. universe. It's extraordinary. We wanted to think about which characters we had encountered in our reading lives that had stayed with us or sparked feelings of romantic or sexual intrigue. Um, and what better time of year is there to talk about this than when capitalism is trying to muscle in on our romantic lives and commodify our desires. It's Valentine's Day in this mix and it's a piece of shit, but it is a time of year when we're kind of drawn to think about these things. So Carrie Plitt, have you ever had a crush on a character in a book? So I think there might be a bit of a pattern emerging in terms of my answers to these questions because I have to give a long explanation in advance to my answers. Um, I love it. Maybe I just feel I have to qualify all of my opinions because I don't <laughs> feel fully comfortable with them. I don't know. But this was a really interesting prompt for me to explore, partially because I realized I really don't relate to characters in literature romantically. That's at all. fascinating to me. I'm very much the opposite. Yeah, I I suspected that might be the case. <laughs> um, but I don't, I mean, I obviously don't want to spend the whole episode digging into my psychology to try to figure out why. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> but I really was, you know, I was never into fan fiction. I never really, like, inserted myself into stories. I, th 
I tend to think of them, even if I'm really invested in them, in sort of a hermetically sealed world that is not mine to play around with and explore. And also, I do think that I read with a real critical pane of glass between me and a novel, even if I'm emotionally invested. Um, that just means that those kinds of feelings are not the ones that I experience when I'm reading. That's so fascinating to me. As you know, I'm <laughs> like the absolute opposite. And often when we read for the show and we talk about our experiences of reading the book and I'm in floods of tears, <laughs> and you're like, it was moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really don't cry when I'm reading. And which is so funny because I think of books in some ways as the most intense emotional experiences that I have. And But I don't cry when I'm reading. I cry all the time in the cinema. Mm. But there's something, I do think it's sort of still cerebrally intense and it still feels at a distance even if it's close to me. I don't know. It's I don't fully invest in the fictional world in a way that feels real to me. So that's all of a buildup to say. It was really hard for me to come up with with characters that I literally had a crush on in literature. I just don't think about characters that way. Oddly, the only character that really came to mind in terms of a crush in a traditional sense was Dick from I Love Dick. <laughs> I remember wow. reading that and be like, that's so sexy. But, oh, then, no. I thought, but then I thought about it more. And um, first of all, she totally deflates Dick as an idea as soon as they have a romantic encounter. So it's hard to keep having a crush on him after mm -hmm. that. But also I was less interested in him as a character and more wrapped up in, in Chris Krause's sort of visceral description of the abstractness of desire, which was one of the things we talked about when we had her on the show. So I was like, okay, well, I was invested in that feeling and the way that she expressed it, but not actually in the object of her attraction. Yeah, that um, figures. Also, yeah. he's a dick. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean... You know, you can still have crushes on dicks. Oh, but anyway, well, that will come to that. Yeah, you definitely can. Okay, so, but I, I wanted to give an actual answer to this question. <laughs> so I've gone on a bit of a tangent, which is that I have loved characters in literature, but those tended to be, I hate the word girl crush, so I don't want to use it, but they're usually people who I really relate to or want to be like rather than people that I want to have some sort of sexy relationship with. So... And these are, I mean, you will sense a pattern when I start saying these names. Like, they're usually strong women who are, like, smart and trying to do their best to do good in the world, even if they, like, <laughs> fail in some way. Carrie, I love you so much. Oh, it's, so, it's so exposing. But um, Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch by George Eliot is is one of the classic examples for me, is a character I've, I have always deeply loved. Um, I, see, I see you and Dorothea in the same kind of Thank way. Thank you for saying that. No, I mean it. Yeah, I. she's a character I always related to and a character who's so fully formed. You know, she so desperately wants to do good but is really constrained by her environment but also her own inability to see what good actually is mm. um, and what the right thing is. And I just, I think she's a brilliant, brilliant character. I think she would play you in the movie of your life. Oh, I've never thought about it that way. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> great. Well, resurrect her from fiction. Absolutely. But I was also thinking like Ifemelu from Americana is a similar kind of character who I just love. I loved when I read that um, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, Hermione Granger, obviously. Leela <laughs> <laughs> in the Neapolitan novels. Those sort of women who like leap off the page and are complex and interesting and good at their core. Good at their core. <laughs> that's what we're gunning for so over that's, here. That's my literary crush in quotes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't apologize. Tell me about yours. Well, um, 
I mean, mine, <laughs> mine are multifaceted and many. <laughs> um, I mean, I just, I love listening to you talk about your relationship with reading because it's so different from mine. And it's like jumping into a completely different headspace. For me, I'm, I'm a very sensory and visual reader. So everything I read, I'm in, I'm in the mix, which is why sometimes I'm quite careful about what I put myself into because it, it can be overwhelming whether I'm enjoying it or not. I'm incredibly responsive. Mm. Um, but it also means that I respond to setups around desire very instinctively as well. So sometimes if I'm presented with a character that I'm supposed to fancy, when it's structured in that way in the narrative, I can't help but find myself kind of a bit turned on by the figure, even if I hate them, hate them. And like, I mean, like Mr. Darcy is a really good example of mm. that. I remember reading that sodding book when I was like, you know, 13 and being totally entranced by this, what's the word I'm looking for? Like distant a-hole. <laughs> You know, he's like an emotionally withholding uh, prick. <laughs> Sorry. Just seeing a strap line on the back of the book. Like, Mr. Darcy is a distant a-hole. But also, you know, and then I remember coming across kind of romantic pot boilers and like Jilly Cooper and stuff like that, which are obviously incredibly normative stories. And the way in which they structure the desire that you're supposed to have is very heteronormative and very based around like physical attraction and all this kind of stuff that, you know, is quite boring now for me. But I remember being totally swept along by that as well. And having this awakening experience of being like, wow, reading is a place for my desire. How exciting. And it's a place where I can go that's really private and belongs to me. And I feel like I'm in this um, intimate relationship with the writer as well as the characters. And it's kind of been that, that way ever since. I've definitely had some pretty weird crushes. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe the weirdest is Behemoth in the Master of Margarita yeah, because he's a cat. <laughs> but he's a, you know, he's a naughty cat. <laughs> it's not making it any better, is it? He's like a life-size cat. He's a humanoid He's cat. He's a humanoid cat, thank you. He's a life-size cat, that's not true. He He's glasses. a human-sized cat. <laughs> but I was just, I was very attracted to his mischief and his, he's like a, a kind of um, clown-like figure almost, but there's something really naughty about him that really captured my attention. And then Voland in that book, who's the devil, who you're kind of supposed to fancy. There was a bit of that going on, but I was a bit like, yeah, I want to pick the side guy, you know. But I also sometimes find myself developing crushes on writers um, for the imaginative worlds that they create. And right now, Carmen Maria Machado like has my heart. <laughs> she has my body. She has my soul. I find the way that she writes and the sexuality of her writing, which is completely bisexual and totally liberated in lots of ways, so compelling. And I, I've kind of developed this, yeah, intellectual crush on her in quite a big way. Nell Zink is another writer who who I feel like that about. The way that kind of desire and sexuality infuses her writing is something that really gets me rather than it being pinned on a particular character. Although I did have a massive crush on Jazz in Nicotine, who's this kind of slightly dominatrix figure and just a character like I've not encountered in other nooks in literature in the literary world. Who else? I had a very reluctant crush on Henry in The Secret History, oh, which was fucking boring, frankly. Like it was boring of me to have a crush on him. I was disappointed in myself, but it happened. You know, there was something about the way he was mysterious and difficult that you know worked because obviously with desire there's always this ebb and flow of like access and retreat yeah. you know that's kind of what keeps it alive so there's characters that are complex and brooding and also because our desire is coded by the culture we grow up in you can't help but that for that to be the case 
And Henry, I suppose Henry is maybe a little bit of a Mr. Darcy, isn't he? Mm, yeah, I think um, you have a one type. Well, at least. But, but this thing, the thing I wanted to say, which is another wonderful facet of desire in reading is that you can your desire in the world of literature can be totally divorced from what you're like in reality it can be fully bisexual and queer even if out in the world you're heterosexual it can be you can you can explore having crushes on characters that you know would be very bad for you in reality or that you wouldn't actually be interested in it's it's a wonderful space for creative um lust i think basically yeah i love that idea i i don't I just don't feel that way. <laughs> and there's I'm nothing very wrong boring. With that. No, um, it's not boring. No, no, no. It's not boring. It's definitely not boring. It's just different and it's unique and amazing. It's this is the thing. I th- I think also this is one of the problems we're talking about desire and and lust and things like that is that we can fall into binaries of what's good and bad and what's mm. hot or not and all that bullshit and it's really not helpful because you can't be other than you are in these ways and however you're constructed in this way is beautiful and wonderful and should be appreciated thank you Octavia (laughs) no I well I do like your idea of having crushes on authors and I think I would be much more likely to have that I have always felt that I have a crush on Virginia Woolf I have always felt that I wanted to be inside her mind and sort of peel it apart and immerse myself in it and cover myself in blankets of her prose you know it's sorry (laughs) that was a very mixed metaphor I love Um, that (laughs) Carrie wants to get inside the Virginia onion and like swaddle herself totally yeah um but it's also interesting what you said about and we've talked about this personally before about how visual a reader you are and maybe that is part of the reason why I have trouble thinking about characters romantically because I think there is a visual element often to crushing and I do not read books visually almost at all I don't have a clear picture in my mind of what's happening and I have since realized that that's not how a lot of other people read it's fascinating interesting is is it just like text scrolling in front of your eyes (laughs) (laughs) no I think I just don't I there's just no picture in my mind yeah I, I never maybe sometimes I think I if I was forced to c- reconstruct something that I was reading, I'd have a very v- blurry vision of it, almost mm. like sometimes in a dream where you have a sense that a space is there, but don't actually know anything about the space. Do you have sensory experiences ever? No. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I'm like in the mix. I want to be. Reading. I want to be in your mind when you're reading. Well, it's very overwhelming a lot of the time. So I don't. I don't, I don't think you would enjoy it. Is is the bottom line? I think you would be like, "What is happening?" <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we land in this place where we have agreed that desire is amorphous and complex, and reading is different for different people, and crushing in literature is not as straightforward as you might think but also totally okay and, and totally something okay. to be explored, yeah. whatever it manifests itself as. And Virginia Woolf is Carrie's Valentine <laughs> and mine is Alexander the Great from Mary Reno's trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> I never read those. Oh my God, it's so sexy. He is just glorious in it. And he has this relationship with this Persian lover and I read it when I was 12 and I was in Greece and it, the whole thing was just so overwhelming. I was on the Acropolis, like mooning after Alexander, touching the, the stones, being like, he was here. <laughs> but that's this amazing thing as well that, uh, you know, the imaginary space of literature can reignite historical figures mm. in this way and mm. bring history from a, a what I was finding in school to be quite a dead and cold place to this like livid, lively, fleshy human who was 
I mean, Alexander the Great, complex figure, <laughs> but in those books, so romantic. And she casts him in this very um, desirous light, which I always thought was very interesting. I haven't revisited them since I was 12, though, so they might be dreadful. <laughs> I've heard a few people talk about them. Actually, maybe it's just you over and over. It's, just me. <laughs> it's one of my benchmarks. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Literary Friction, Minnesota 2. Carrie and I are back to give you some extracurricular cultural recommendations. Although as I say that, I realise it sounds maybe a little bit sexy and I didn't mean that. I meant things outside of our reading curriculum because we, we do do things other than read books. So Carrie, what else has got you excited lately that's not reading? Please help dig me out of this hole. <laughs> well, so this is really news to me because I use extracurricular a lot to talk about things that I'm doing outside of work. Um, I didn't know it had a sexy dimension, so I might have to rethink a lot of the conversations I've had with people. Anyway, that is a discussion for another day. So I have a very enthusiastic recommendation today. Yes, babe. Which, um, as listeners of the show will know, I love musicals. Musical theater is a big part of my life and my personality. Maybe that's going a little too far, but I love musicals. I don't think it's going too far. Yeah. Anyway, I I would like to think I'm a discerning lover of musicals, but I do love musicals. And I saw a musical in London recently, which was fabulous. Um, it's called. She's actually doing jazz hands, guys, <laughs> as she says this. I'm actually doing a jazz square. <laughs> <laughs> the other day, I was doing jazz squares and singing to Eddie, and he was like, "Do you think our children will just come out of the womb like doing a jazz jazz square? hands? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep." <laughs> So the musical is called Company, and it is currently playing at the Gilgud in the West End. If you don't know Company, this is a musical by the great master of musical theater, Stephen Sondheim. Written in 1970, it was really revolutionary for its time. It had no real plot. It was about sex and relationships. It's about this guy, Bobby, who on his 35th birthday still hasn't settled down. He's surrounded by married couples, and it's sort of a series of vignettes about marriage and him deciding whether he wants to settle down or not. From that description, you can tell that it hasn't aged very well since the 1970s. I mean, not many things have. No, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. So what is brilliant about this uh, production in the West End right now is that they've gender swapped the lead title. So Bobby becomes Bobby with an IE. And it's a woman who doesn't want to settle down who's turning 35, which obviously has a lot more resonance with our contemporary times, especially with um, a lot of women having children later and discussion of the biological clock and a lot of pressure for single women to be in relationships. They also made one of the couples a gay couple, which I thought was really great. A lot of the press around the musical was like, you know, a, a starkly bold, modern take on this musical. And I came away from it being like, well... Yes and no, because the musical is ultimately about how monogamy is great and um, <laughs> and Bobby decides to settle down at the end, even though marriage is sort of a difficult thing. And I think it would be a much more bold play if that was not the decision that Bobby makes. However, <laughs> Key um, change. I totally love this production. As you can, it is such a beautiful 
musical. And it, I think it thinks really deeply about the joys and perils of marriage uh, and long-term relationships and what it actually means to be in a long-term relationship and what you take and what you give. Um, the staging of the production is great. The performances are just totally radiant. Rosalie Craig is the title role as, as Bobby. And Patti Lapone, the Broadway legend, is Joanne. She sings the showstopper Ladies Who Lunch, if you've ever heard of that I one. have, yeah. Yeah, it just brings the house down. Amazing. Um, there, there's a number, Not Getting Married, which is re- it's sort of like a fast singing song, um, which just was amazing and so well staged and everyone sort of got up on their feet after it happened and I it just fills me with joy and I I saw it at a moment of when I was having quite a lot of anxiety around like work and life and it reminded me of theater's ability to be genuinely emotionally transformative like I came out of the theater happier and singing so um it's only on at the Gilgood until the 30th of March in London I urge you to go see it if you can't, they have just released a cast recording, and I would, <laughs> I would really recommend listening to it if you're at all interested in musical theater or Sondheim or just getting to know this musical. Um, there's also a great Broadway cast recording from the 70s, which you can check out, and it's interesting to see the differences between the two. But it's such a good soundtrack, and there are some real Sondheim classics like Marry Me a Little and Being Alive and... Yeah, I just loved it. And then I I was thinking about this as I was recommending it. And I was like, oh, my God, the other thing I have really loved recently is the TV show Russian Doll on Netflix. I'm desperate to watch it. So good. I watched it. I binged it. I actually stayed up late into the night binging it, which I don't often do with shows. It's really tight. It's really good. And also features a woman on her 36th birthday. Hey. There's a theme. What to- <laughs> hey, hey. And it's my birthday in two weeks. So oh, my God. What does that mean? I don't know. But I think even if I was a 50-year-old man, I would have still enjoyed these two things. Yeah. Because um, they're fab. It was lovely listening to you describe them. I mean, I haven't been to see a musical since the last time. In fact, the last time I went to see a musical was when you took me to Hamilton, which was amazing. And reminded me then of that cathartic experience of that kind of theater. Mm. Often I don't go to the theater a huge amount these days. And when I do, it tends to be for incredibly serious, you know, like (laughs) intellectual plays, which have their place. But actually that feeling of like everyone on their feet and that amazing experience of, you know, musicians and singers and Mm. dancers and the whole kind of act of everyone coming together in unison. It is really, really exciting. I just rambled for a really long time. No, you did. I've come out of some sort of trance. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I I would recommend it. Yeah, you made me want to see it. I probably won't, but you made me want to. burn <laughs> no 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 it just mean that you know no maybe it, it was a small burn I get it, I it get wasn't it. meant to be a burn no it's fine i'd rather actually just watch you talk about musicals than see them i think that's like i can get high off watching you do you want me to perform a full one man show of company more doing than all of the anything numbers? more than anything because i will do it yes okay yes please <laughs> should we do it off mic yes okay <laughs> So um, my my recommendation is very different. Um, a friend took me to see an exhibition called Ever Standing Apart from Everything, which just opened at a gallery called Modern Art on Helmet Row, which is near Old Street in London. And it's by an artist called Linda. Her name's Linda Sterling, L-I-N-D-E-R, not Linda. Linda. Um, 
and Linder. Linder, exactly. Yeah, you've got to get out the American mm. accent to make that clear. Um, yeah, she's an artist whose name I sort of vaguely knew but didn't really, couldn't connect. Um, and this friend was like, let's just, you know, we'll drop in and then we'll go get some noodles. And it was great. And I love, I love being taken to art exhibitions that way when I don't know anything going in and someone is taking me who knows more than me. It's kind of a glorious experience to just be a total passenger in the whole thing. Um, and Linda's work is collage and photo montage. And it's an aesthetic that is so familiar now because everyone has been doing it for years. But she was, you know, she was one of the originals to kind of not necessarily come up with the aesthetic, but to develop it. She was part of the punk scene in Manchester in the 70s. Um, and she did artwork for bands like the Buzzcocks. And now has been like fully taken on by the art establishment and her work is in I think the Tate Modern and this was her first solo exhibition for a few years um, and you will recognize her work without knowing that you know it she works a lot with pornography and then um, collages over the top with like flowers or irons or like plates of cream pie and she makes a lot of very concise clever visually appealing comments on the commodification of the body and sex and the hilarity of porn really when you take it out of the context of a, of a porn magazine and especially because a lot of these are from the 70s and from the 80s so everyone has a lot of hair on the face and on their bits and the setups are very like leather sofas and all this kind of stuff and then she's just got flowers coming out of people's orifices and you know irons and the whole kind of domestification of the space. Is that a word? Domestic domestification? I don't even know what that is. Domestic. What I mean is. Yeah, the, like, no, I, we, bringing, got it, yeah, we got the, it. Can, can, it's I, a word in academia, I'm sure. <laughs> it absolutely isn't. But um, let's make it one. Anyway, it, it was just, it's a really great show. It's There's loads to see, but you don't feel compelled to look at every single piece if you don't want to. The energy is really witty and light and you can just nip in and nip out. Um, and then you can get some excellent ramen over the road, which is what we did. But yeah, you'll also actually, you've probably seen her work without knowing it around the tube at the moment because she's done an exhibition. Um, she was commissioned by Art on the Underground for Southwark Station called Bower of Bliss. And one of her pieces is on the cover of the tube map that's out at the moment. And it's cool. It's just cool. It's just like fun, energetic work that doesn't really demand very much of you. But slightly shifts your perspective when you look at it so you know it's great and then also the other thing was I watched The Haunting of Hill House which actually a couple of friends were like I really thought you would hate that and I did not hate it I really loved it it was um it was really gripping and totally overwrought and overblown and like slightly dodgy on the gender politics and the kind of weird hysterical woman in the attic kind of vibe but totally gripping interesting yeah I've heard really mixed things about yeah that. yeah I can see why it's not uh it's it's very far from being like a perfect thing, but it. I started watching it on an incredibly rainy day with two really close friends in San Sebastian where we were visiting someone and um, we were just under the covers drinking tea and like squealing like piglets. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. So I think sometimes when you immerse yourself at the beginning of a series, then you commit and then it's, you don't necessarily see it that clearly anymore. So there you have our cultural recommendations for the month. We uh, hope you enjoyed Minnesota 2. Uh, please get in touch with us. Let us know about your literary crushes, your general crushes. Uh, you can email us at litfriction at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at litfriction. Hit us up. Tell us what you're thinking. 
Totally. And big thanks to Rory Bowens at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and the music you're hearing in the interludes. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. We will be back in two weeks with a full show with another juicy author interview for you. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Isn't that what, what? Frasier said? I don't I know. know. I never watched Frasier. <laughs> yeah, I watched Frasier for a while. It was bad. Um, Please have a great time. We'll see you soon. You're Octavia Bright. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Octavia Bright. This is Carrie Plitt. I don't know how to drive. See you later. (laughs) 